Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you again for uh, coming out. I don't have quite the presentation that our, uh, that our two lovely ladies, uh, Megan Marshall and Lisa Schultz, had provided, but uh, I'll do the best that I can. My name is uh, Dan Albrick with Leopardo Construction. Uh, I am chair of uh, programs along with uh, Jeanette Outlaw with OFS Brands and Howard Wender with Strata Real Estate. Uh, I just wanted a, a quick special thank you to uh, Jennifer Fitzgerald from Duff and Phelps for helping to orchestrate this wonderful panel today. Uh, today's program is being podcast. Um, so if you have a questions with, at, at the end of the program, please raise your hand. We will be coming around with a microphone so we can capture all the information. Um, also, I'm going to bring up uh, Tom Stacy and uh, Brian Hayes is here as well to talk about our program uh, in Wisconsin for next week. Tom, I know you're probably just taking a bite, but come on up. Thanks, Dan. Um, here with Brian Hayes, I'm Tom Stacy with Epstein Ewan in Milwaukee. I sort of feel like the boy that cried wolf. We, we had a program false start earlier in the year, and we're happy to announce once again that uh, next week, Wednesday, we'll be at the new Uline facility in Pleasant Prairie with Phil Hunt, who's a VP, handles all their real estate transactions, Michael Murphy from Centerpoint, um, Todd Battle from Kenosha Area Business Alliance and Gene Werby Harris from the Village of Pleasant Prairie to talk about what got Uline to that site, what they had to do to go through the process, and of course what public incentives were there uh, or were, were put in place uh, to make it even more attractive. Uh, we had a great conference call this morning. We look forward to a fantastic program next week, and hopefully you can join us. Um, you know, we, we thought we'd have former Green Bay Packer quarterback Brett Favre uh, during the Q&A, but apparently he's had his phone taken away. Um, we sure are glad he's in Minnesota, though. So hopefully you can make the reverse commute uh, next week, Wednesday in the morning, and take advantage of a great program. Brian, any? It's only, only 50 miles to Pleasant Prairie. We, we cut uh, 30, 40 miles off your trip, so please come and join us. Thank you, Brian and Tom. It's going to be a great program. Early rise, you won't have any traffic trying to get up there by 7 anyway. So um, November is going to be our annual year in retrospect. It is uh, entitled ROI to really focus on retail, office, and industrial and what's happened in those markets. I think last year it was... Ouch, that's going to hurt. Hopefully we have better news from, uh, from 2010. December, there will be no lunch program. And then in January is our annual economic forecast with our friends from the Federal Reserve. That takes us to today's program, The Influencer. Federal, state, and local policies impacting real estate trends. We figured the timing was perfect in October here. You guys have been flooded with TV commercials and radio announcements with all the politics going on and uh, with, uh, with the elections coming up here in a couple weeks. So timing is of the essence here. Uh, our moderator today, uh, we're welcome to have back uh, Steve Stoner. He's a founder and managing partner with SC Group Real Estate. And our esteemed panelist, Joe Pilevsky, director of Duff and Phelps. Uh, Bob Herman, managing director of Duff and Phelps. 
Danielle Meltzer Castle, shareholder with Vetter Price, and Peter Raphael, principal with William Blair and Company. There's a lot of background information on each one of our esteemed speakers today on your tables, so please uh, read up on it. Um, and we're pleased to have them here. And a round of applause for our, uh, our speakers. Thank you. Is it on? This should be ready to go. Testing. Hold on. Who's is this? Who gets this? Is that the best speaker gets an award, apparently. Well, thank you all for coming uh, this afternoon. I, I think we've got a really great panel, as Dan mentioned. Uh, what we're going to do is have each of our speakers make a short presentation, uh, and then we'll go into Q&A. You know, I'll start it off, uh, and then uh, as questions come up from the audience, uh, just raise your hand. I, Usually Beth or somebody walks around with a mic. Uh, please wait for the mic and uh, and uh, tell us who you are and where you where you work uh, as you uh, ask your question. So Bob Herman's going to start us off. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thanks, Steve, for that uh, introduction. And uh, I'll lead off today, and the discussion about what the state of affairs is, well, out there is something that you know better than anybody. Uh, but really, the purpose of my presentation is, is give you a little background on why things are happening out there and how current governmental policies are actually making things worse in terms of the markability of uh, commercial and residential real estate. So hence the title, Adding Insult to Injury, the Impact of Governmental Policies on uh, Commercial Real Estate. Uh, just the overview of uh, where we're at, why we're at. Um, obviously the federal government's policy, both its monetary and fiscal policy during the, uh, the 2000s, were extremely beneficial for both commercial and residential real estate. You know, the free money, the overall, the uh, low interest rates caused a record number of transactions to occur and of course meant a lot of deals to go on, low cap rates, high valuations. It was a wonderful time. 
unfortunately, the economic aftermath, the bust, um, is being prolonged by an extremely dormant economy. And this is now resulting in substantial shortfalls in both the federal, the state, and local governments. And unfortunately, the current strategies that are being employed uh, by state governments to try to maintain their, their, uh, their budgets or narrow their budget deficits are actually having a negative effect on the commercial real estate recovery. And this is due to the old trickle-down effect. Um, the highlights here is back when the stimulus bill was passed in February of 2009, there was $144 billion in funding provided uh, to the states and local governments knowing that with the economic downturn, they were gonna have gaps in their budgets. Unfortunately, that funding is, most of that funding is ending at the end of this year. Um, and in addition to that, all these different programs, the different uh, grants and uh, other types of programs like for uh, renewable energy and things, those programs are also concluding at the end of the year. So any potential economic activity generated by them, the road projects in the sign you see um, when you're out there driving are all coming to an end. Um, and so what's happened is state and local governments have been just scrambling out there because they've had record declines in their revenues and they've had to substantially adjust their budgets downward. How are they doing this? By reducing staff, putting workers on furloughs, delaying capital projects. Hmm, sounds a lot like what uh, corporate America's been doing in the same time frame. But you'll see they've been doing it at a much slower reaction time than what the private sector has done. And so we just, we'll show you some different graphs here in a second, but in summary, um, both revenues, both budgeted revenue and spending have been decreased. Um, sales tax and property tax collections are down, and the decrease in property tax collections is for the first time it's really happened in most jurisdictions since the Depression. And in response to all this, the state and local governments are increasing their fees, they're creating new fees, and property tax rates are going up, not only in most places nationally, but locally. So what this does for commercial real estate is effectively it increases the hold cost or the cost to dispose of property, um, both on a national and a local basis. And we'll just show you a few slides about what's happening here in Cook County and the city of Chicago. This graph uh, comes out, it's actually the colors are red and blue. Um, and it has nothing to do with political affiliations or the people in office at the time. Um, but are clearly, um, you know, bar charts, the uh, blue lines are government spend, and these are on a constant dollar basis. So you can kind of see a pattern here is beginning in the mid-1980s when the economy was expanding well, uh, governments were spending at, you know, 4% a year, and their and revenues were going up 4% a year. So they were spending everything they were getting a lot of revenue coming in, things were great. A recession occurs, and what happens? The red bars out, outstrip by far the blue bars, which means governments keep spending. And usually to, to the tune another 18 to 36 months after the slowdown in economic activity occurs. And that's represented by the gray bars up here. Then you can kind of see they, you know, they start to react to it, spending starts picking up again, we have another economic downturn. And this repeats itself. The key thing is right now is there's always, again, a lag effect by the time government reacts to the economic conditions. 
is now both capital budgets as well as the, uh, the spend. So the revenues are way down and so is the, uh, so they're doing the double whammy. And this is why every time you pick up a paper, there's an argument about a state budget deficits, uh, about laying off school teachers and everything else, because all the sources of revenue now um, are now drying up that they've been accustomed to for the recent time frame. Um, this is just breaking down about where the revenues generally come from. Historically, you see this is sales tax, property tax, and income tax collections. And so during the recession years, you can imagine people are buying less, sales tax revenues go down, uh, income tax go down because people are generally making less. And then at the same point, but property tax revenues seem to be always in the positive until um, in 2010 is the first time you see here in over, you know, close to 20 years that they're negative and they're anticipated to start to increase further over the next couple years. Why? Same thing, there's a lag effect. Uh, for, you live, for those of you who live in Cook County, and in November you'll be getting your property tax bill, so close to almost 2011, you're paying your bill with a value date of January 1st of 2009. So there's almost a two-year lag effect, whether it's your residential bill or your you know, commercial property bill. It's uh, moving along at the same clip, so there's a two-year delay. This is only going to get worse over the next couple of years. So if we you know, did an update, you can expect these figures to continue to be below the line. And again, so how are governments trying to make up for this? Well, you can see this is a survey of the number of cities and what percent of cities, what type of remedies are they seeking to help maintain their, their overall revenue. And you can see the biggest one is they've increased fee levels. So if you have an existing fee out there that they charge, um, those have, that's been the most frequent one. 40% of cities have done that. Almost a quarter have increased their property tax rates to make up for the shortfalls in revenue. And you can see the number of fees and you know, the new fees have been created to help uh, fund the shortfalls also. And then on the local level, uh, you can see, for example, the biggest thing affecting owners here would be, of course, property taxes. Uh, many of you may know who own or manage property here in Cook County. It's valued on a triennial system between the city, the north, and the south portions of the county. And there's over about 1.85 billions of parcels that are revalued each year as part of that. The values remain the same in the subsequent two years unless you file appeal or do something to change that. And this is how they break out. You can see 85% of the parcels in the county are residential and only 5% are in industrial and commercial. But from a value perspective, approximately 60% is residential in overall the total value and approximately 30% that 19.4 billion is generated by commercial and industrial property. So in aggregate, you have over $600 billion of market value of property of which commercial real estate plays, uh, takes up about a third of that, around 30%. One thing in terms of real estate, how the changes hurt the local governments even further is the fact that the number of sales transactions are so far off. Again, something not that this is new to you, but on a quarterly basis, um, there was generally $20,000, 20,000 transactions a quarter. And uh, most of these, of course, were residential properties. Some have now, you know, obviously in commercial properties. 
But the shortfall alone for the city of Chicago has meant between, depending on the year, since 2007, a decline of 100 to $125 million less each year over that time frame in budgeted revenues. And from a, from a commercial you know, property standpoint, back in, uh, these are statistics from the number of sales that occurred in the Chicago Loop from 2006 through 2009. And you can see how it went from close to 27 transactions, close to the peak of the market, down to one in 2009. And you can see that you know, back when the sale prices were you know, 400 some dollars a foot, the average sale price is still around 200, even though with less transactions, because the properties that are trading are generally those long-term lease to a, you know, a grade a high credit tenant. And so it's from a, uh, from a sales standpoint, it looks like the market's been unaffected by the economy. And then lastly, so what's happening is that because of the change of the assessment ratios and such, um, tax rates will be going up this year. So uh, they'll probably be going up anywhere from 10 to 15%. And so even though the value of your property is probably declined, your overall tax bills are going up. So from a property and asset manager basis, you need to be continue to be diligent. And you know, just because my assessed value didn't change, uh, it probably should have gone down. And it's something that you need very, you know, to be very diligent and proactive in, in fighting. So that's the bad news. The bar is open, uh, but and it looks like it will continue, uh, you know, for the next couple of years because of the lag effect on the spending. So even though values and everything else are down, the impact on real estate, you know, it's the government policies are not going to be helping things anytime soon, unless, as noted, you take advantage of some type of either special legislation or negotiated incentives um, to help make a deal work. Um, in the current environment. With that, back to Steve. Uh, uh, Bob, very few of my clients have actually seen a reduction in property tax bills. Is that because of the lag effect and the impact doesn't fully hit, uh, or, or why, why is that? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. You know, the, trying to decipher a tax bill, especially here in Cook County, I think you need either a PhD or a master's in tax to figure out what's going on. Um, but effectively, what it is is um, again, two things. With the, the actual assessed values in the county have decreased for the last three years. That hasn't happened since the Great Depression. And so you have a smaller tax base. Um, the way that the state comes up with their equalization formula, they're using sales from 2006. Little different market than today. And so again, the lag effect is resulting in the higher tax rates and they're slow to react in terms of the lower, uh, the lower valuations that have occurred because they're you know, claiming there's no sales out there to show that there's been a decline in the market. So uh, tax reductions are likely still in the future for commercial owners as the reduced values flow through the system and get reassessed? Yeah, it's the lag effect in the valuation process that is slow to come through in terms of the overall uh, you know, valuation process by the county. And has there been any shift in tax policy that puts more of the burden on commercial owners versus residential uh, lately? Um, yeah, the one notable thing that um, I've talked briefly or it's cited on the slide is uh, beginning in 2009, they changed the assessment ratios here in Cook County where all of residential type property is now at 10% of an assessment level 
and the commercial industrial is at 25%. So there's two and a half ratio um, difference for the same value of property. And knowing though I showed you the shift of the amount of residential ownership um, puts a greater burden on the commercial industrial taxpayer uh, disproportionate, you know, certainly to the residential ownership. So that shift has not been a positive. And in fact, BOMA and a couple other of the key groups were protesting the, or, you know, showing a disagreement with that change when it occurred about a year and a half ago. Thank you. Joe, do you want to take us to the next step? Sure. Well, as, <clears throat> as Bob said, uh, state and local tax rates have been going up in a lot of cases as well as fees. And one of the bright spots uh, potentially for some of you and your clients is that states have become very much aware of this and are trying, despite their budget situation, to pass new incentives to assist companies that are able to make investments and create jobs. I think it makes some sense to take a look at uh, some of the events that have led up to where we are today. And, um, you know, this slowdown really began probably prior to 2008, and I'm sure we could get a group of economists that could argue about when it actually occurred. But we knew that things were slowing down in 2008. We felt a tightening of credit on our projects, more difficult to get loans, uh, higher equity requirements, so forth. You know, that really culminated, I think, with the, or was, was crystallized with the collapse of Lehman Brothers. After that, uh, you know, I think most things came to a grinding halt. No projects were being financed. Even companies that had plans and had uh, great capital at their disposal decided just to hold off on everything. Uh, coupled with that was the residential mortgage crisis, and then in March of 2009, the Dow Industrial Average hit, bottomed out somewhere around 6,500. Uh, it, it does provide me a little bit of comfort to know that the Dow is now around 11,000, so it's rebounded. Uh, it's also interesting to note that unemployment hit a high in the U.S. in October of 2009. So what we saw was the the time um, between the movement in the market and the movement in the employment situation. So hopefully what we've seen on the downside in terms of the employment lagging the market going downward will also be the case moving upward. The government's response Bob talked about and I have listed here in this, this diagram some of the things that uh, we all remember, probably would like to forget, the AIG bailout, uh, the restructuring of General Motors, uh, the mortgage uh, crisis, and uh, trying to provide some relief to homeowners, and um, uh, some new bond provisions through the stimulus package, which Peter's going to talk about uh, in a little bit. Also, new state and local incentives um, uh, occurred during 2009. I'm going to touch on some selected improvements that have occurred in the last uh, 24 months. Uh, beginning with the state of Kansas, and these are in no particular order, um, the uh, state of Kansas in 2009, again in response to these economic shocks, uh, came up with their PEAK program, which stands for Promoting Employment Across Kansas. Uh, the PEAK program allows companies that are moving jobs into the state um, or expanding within the state to, to retain up to 95% of their withholding taxes. So this is a real EBITDA cash flow benefit to companies, and that was the intention. Uh, this withholding can be negotiated uh, for a period of five years or more, depending on the quality of the jobs and other factors. 
The states uh, want to be, again, mindful. Here they're trying to attract business, but they don't want to worsen their situation in terms of the state budget. So they set a cap of $4.8 million per year. A couple of case studies, um, KeyBank uh, moved a mortgage processing center out of downtown Kansas City to uh, Overland Park, where there was a, a vacant portion of the uh, Sprint campus. And General Motors, uh, they also promised to uh, create 250 additional jobs. General Motors uh, accessed the peak program in conjunction with a commitment to retain and create 1,000 jobs. Indiana also enacted new legislation. Uh, here's a slide on the uh, new employer tax credit. Uh, this credit was designed, the, Indiana's always had very good incentive programs, most notably the EDGE tax credit program, which is a refundable tax credit program based on using the withholding from new jobs to actually make a cash payment back to companies over a period of years. But they, they looked at the situation, they said, well, how can we provide more benefit to companies right up front? This is the program they came up with. If a company has uh, Indiana income tax liability and they're certain that they're going to have that over time, this program, if they're creating jobs, they can access, and 10% of the employee wages can be dedicated in the form of a non-refundable tax credit over the first two years. Just a numerical example, to follow that for a 100-job um, project and an average wage of $50,000, uh, this credit would generate $900,000 uh, in a net present value basis. Indiana also saw the trend of uh, companies wanting to locate and site data centers in secure locations across the country. And they came up with an exemption for information technology equipment. Uh, the requirement is the company must invest 10 million in personal and real property and have wages, and there's usually not a lot of jobs, of course, with data centers. Wages must be at least 125% of the county average. Uh, and the term of the uh, exemption uh, is set by the local community. Again, another, exemption, another example, numerical example here is a $10 million uh, investment in personal property and data center in a five-year term would generate about a half million dollars. Obviously, uh, this is based on tax rates, so there, this is going to vary. The benefit that is going to vary across the state. Illinois uh, took some action as well, despite its budget, uh, with regard to some local municipal incentives. Uh, the Industrial Jobs Recovery Law, which is a type of TIF district in Illinois, uh, sunset in 2010 and had to be renewed and, and the uh, General Assembly sought to renew this to 2012. Uh, everyone voted. It was unanimous with the exception of one legislator. Uh, and the governor signed it this past summer. So it was a very popular project because Unlike most TIF districts which focus on the elimination of blight, this particular part of the law focuses on communities that have a, uh, a high unemployment rate and is designed to improve industrial areas to retrain workers. Um, the uh, case study we have is an actual project that uh, Duffins Phelps is currently working on. I'm working on with uh, Jennifer Fitzgerald and Brad Davis and my team. Um, in having a, a corporate client relocate within Illinois. Uh, right now we expect that um, 
through the use of the industrial jobs recovery law, they are going to receive approximately $2 million worth of um, TIF assistance. Illinois also passed a vacant facility property tax abatement. This is an interesting law because uh, I don't think many people are aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, under this law, uh, if a building has been vacant for 24 months or, or longer, uh, a municipality may, uh, they have the ability to request a two-year 100% abatement for your client that's moving into that building. So this can be a very, again, the, the concept, much like Indiana's two-year tax credit, this was designed to have a very quick, big financial impact without um, impacting state revenues. This is a local authorization that the state's providing. And uh, just an example from Lake County, uh, 100,000 square foot manufacturing facility, two-year abatement uh, could be approximately $800,000. So this is a, a big value over a very compressed time frame, 24 months. Moving up north to Wisconsin, uh, Wisconsin, I've been doing business incentives for 17 years now after working in local government for 10 years, as I think my bio says on the table. And Wisconsin was always viewed as a place that was very difficult to establish partnerships with business. Uh, they, they viewed their state as a state where businesses should want to do uh, business, and uh, they, they just didn't seem that interested in, in crafting um, uh, financial assistance packages. That's all changed in the last couple of years. Uh, we, my group, have seen a lot of uh, activity in Wisconsin, and the department uh, couldn't be easier to work with. So I want to give them kudos for what they've done. And a big part of it was an, started with an overhaul uh, in 2009 of their credit um, tools. They basically rehauled all their credit tools, which were more based on enterprise zones and geographic designations, to focus more on business activities. If a business is making substantial investment, if a business is training its workforce, if a business is trying to retain or attract, is trying to move their headquarters to Wisconsin or retain it in Wisconsin, um, or trying to make investments in areas where there's high unemployment, they wanted to provide a flexible program where they could provide credits. And these credits can be made uh, either uh, to be refundable as well. So it, it is a very um, good program and one that our clients have enjoyed. Uh, a case study of that is here. Uh, we had a, a Fortune 500 client that was considering citing a, uh, was, was in the process of selecting a site for an engineering center. They were a global company. They could have chose uh, any, well, a number of states they were focused on in the United States as well as um, looking at a couple of countries overseas. They chose to put this in Wisconsin and they accessed um, over $700,000 in credits uh, in order to retain 90 jobs that were at risk. Uh, Ohio Jobs Creation Tax Credit is not a new program. Uh, it's a very similar to the EDGE program, which I described previously. It's based on incremental withholding from new employees being paid back to a company over time. The point of, bring, of mentioning this is that uh, for high-quality jobs being created in Ohio over time, the department, uh, the state Ohio Department of Development has relaxed uh, the municipal participation requirement. So for quality projects, it used to be that you, if you had, a, let's say, an insurance company that was expanding, you needed to also go to the municipality and to obtain a 
uh, property tax abatement, which many times didn't make sense and was very difficult to uh, obtain. Now the state um, can provide this incentives without that particular uh, municipal participation. And here's just a numerical example on the following slide uh, for a 300 person uh, financial service uh, project and average wage of $50,000, $1.2 million in credits. And I just wanted to also just remind everyone that these are incremental improvements that have been made to the law. This is in addition to other state incentives as well as local incentives that may be available. Typically what we see in our projects over time is that the benefit to companies through negotiated incentives is somewhere between 10 and 30 percent of their project costs. Uh, Ohio Data Center tax incentives, uh, the, uh, similar to Indiana, uh, I Iowa uh, saw companies that were adding uh, data centers. And uh, these data centers, um, they were trying to attract these to Iowa. They set up a situation where sales tax could be refunded to the company. Uh, and for projects of 5,000 square feet or more, the term of the sales tax is not only for the upfront investment, but also the computers, the fuel, and the electricity to run the data center uh, for the first seven years. For, med for mega projects, uh, 200 million or more, not many of those out there, but if there are mega projects, uh, they provide 100% refund in perpetuity. And again, that's in addition to property tax abatements uh, and other job-related incentives. And just an example, on um, another numerical example for a $5 million uh, data center and a $1 million annual spend, it would be a sales tax refund of approximately $300,000 net present value. <coughs> Incentives are great uh, in that, and if your companies are expanding, relocating, consolidating, now is a great time to be entering into these discussions with state and local governments because uh, obviously jobs are of uh, top priority. But doing a project with incentives, um, you can only get there if you have financing. And, and so as Peter is going to talk about in a little bit, uh, there's a number of interesting programs that can be accessed for that purpose as well. Steve? Uh, thanks, Joe. The majority of the people here in the audience operate in the state of Illinois. And as you and I both know, uh, a location decision is a lot more complicated than just incentive. There's, there's labor, there's logistics, and other factors. I think. I'm interested in knowing how Illinois compares generally on all those factors with the states surrounding it, and then specifically on the incentives, you know, how we stack up. Well, the uh, Illinois Chamber of Commerce did a study on cost of doing business, and I think that's, uh, that's a fair way of addressing it because they looked at uh, utilities, they looked at taxes, they looked at uh, productivity of workforce. and. What uh, they found, and they looked over a period of time, and this was done by the Chamber of Commerce in conjunction with Northern Illinois University and their, uh, their economists there, what they found was that Illinois, uh, because of productivity, um, still leads in many of the areas, R&D, logistics, and so forth, but is losing ground. And, um, and if, uh, because of the cost of doing business, as that continues to rise, uh, if nothing changes, the trend does not look good for the state of Illinois. Uh, I, I think we, we certainly see from a tax standpoint, um, and Jennifer and Brad and I have seen projects where, uh, for example, the, even with an abatement in Cook County, 
the annual cost of real estate taxes are more than a comparable property in uh, Indiana by a factor of maybe three or four with an abatement. And so um, when you have that kind of situation, it takes a lot of productivity and logistics to make up for those uh, annual costs. Recently, I want to make sure I have my facts right, so I'll ask you the facts first. Sears relocated from suburban Chicago to the Sears Tower. Uh, and if I recall correctly, they received a fairly significant incentive to do that. Is that correct? Are you speaking of United Airlines? I mean, I'm sorry. United Airlines. Thank you. Yes. And Willis Tower. Well, it used to be the Sears Tower. Yeah. I'm a suburbanite now, so I've lost track of the names of some of the buildings. But yes, United uh, moved from the suburbs to the city and received, uh, I believe under TIF, a pretty significant incentive. All right, so I have two, so right so far? Right. I'm, I'm not setting a trap, I just wanna make sure I, uh, I have my facts right. Uh, two questions, uh, back when you and I worked on TIFs many years ago, the term blight was, was uh, a key element in approving TIFs. Uh, you used that word a few minutes ago. So question number one is how does Sears Tower, Willis Tower, qualify uh, for a TIF under the concept of blight? And then secondly, on a bigger picture, you know, how is it good public policy to take a ta an Illinois taxpayer from one community just and move it to another one? And, you know, that, to me, as an Illinois resident, doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about the blight one first. Um, uh, the focus is blight for two types of TIFs, a blighted TIF and a conservation area. First, the blighted TIF, you have 13 factors under Illinois law and you need to prove um, convincingly that uh, to a major extent, five or more of those factors are present um, in a particular TIF district. And it, they are reasonably distributed throughout that TIF district. So um, that's for a blighted TIF district. For a conservation area TIF district, um, actually that by definition under Illinois law is an area that is not blighted but is in danger of becoming blighted by the presence of three or more of those 13 factors and by the, the fact that the area as a whole has not been subject to growth and development, usually shown through permit, building permit data, and that 35, uh, 50% or more of the buildings within the defined area have, uh, are 35 years of age or older. So as long under a conservation area, which I think includes, uh, I think Sears Tower was designated as a conservation area. I, we didn't write that redevelopment plan. Uh, I think it would be fairly easy to show that three or more of those factors are, avail are, are present and the other, other criteria is met. So uh, I agree with you, it's not a blighted building uh, per se. However, I would also say having worked in the, in the building uh, where there were extreme vacancies and there were uh, significant improvements that needed to be made that if uh, nothing was done there and there wasn't reinvestment, and there wasn't attraction of businesses, that building could become uh, extremely vacant down the road and could become blighted. It's hard to think of that scenario, but it could happen. Um, part, two. part two, a little bit more difficult question, is um, United Airlines, and, and in general, I won't speak specifically United Airlines, but in general, does it make sense? Uh, one of the interesting things about our work is that we get to work with a lot of great companies and, and, and great people in, in government, but we also get to see the, the benefits of these projects. And 
a lot of um, focus, and appropriately so, is on the incentive package. What are these? These are, these are public dollars. These are your taxes, my taxes being spent. Um, why should we do this uh, to keep this move this company from, from the suburbs to downtown? Um, most of the tax, most of the incentives were local incentives. So they were expenditures from Chicago. That's, that's first of all. So um, there wasn't a, a large impact on the suburbs other than the fact that they were going to be vacant uh, for that uh, particular facility. The, the other point is that the fiscal impact of the retention and what now appears to be, uh, looks like a very large expansion because of the acquisition uh, of an airline is, is going to lead to a huge fiscal impact. And we did actually a fiscal impact study that was presented before the Community Development Commission of Chicago, which showed, um, I believe, the impact because of the cost of renovating their space and the indirect impact of having the employees down here, that um, it was a, a positive, net positive financial impact to the city of Chicago, despite uh, the incentives uh, starting in year two. But what about the state? The state as a whole, the state did not have much that they were putting into incenting them to stay here. So had they lost that, that uh, operations center, that would have been an enormous impact. Um, they, didn't, they didn't contribute a great deal to retaining them. And with the additional employees through their acquisition that are going to be part of the operations now, I think the state's a big winner. We might come back to that, but I'm going to, uh, I think it's Peter's, Peter's going to be next. All right. So as we're painfully aware, to find financing or credit for real estate projects is very difficult right now. There are some federal and state programs that we'd like to discuss that might help. Um, however, with, as with any government program, there are some pitfalls that I want to point out. Uh, as Ronnie Reagan once said, the most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Uh, we've heard about some incentives. Uh, those included tax increment financing. We have special service areas here in Illinois, sales tax sharing, and business districts. Those are on the state level. And you know, we, we need to look at all of those when we're trying to put a project together. But there are also some federal programs out there. In the past, we've had a, a program called industrial revenue bonds. Uh, it was very limited. It worked for small manufacturing. You were limited to $10 million a year of cap or $10 million for, um, uh, for any one bond issue. Now HUD has some programs that do provide credit for multifamily housing, but for the most part, an industrial revenue bond uh, structure does not provide any credit. All that it does is allows us access to the tax-exempt bond market. And with access to the tax-exempt bond market, the goal is lower interest rates. So the IRBs that previously existed, you have multifamily housing, small manufacturing, uh, you could do sewer and water, privately owned facilities, solid waste disposal facilities, airport terminals, all the uh, terminals at O'Hare were done through this program, um, but really limited. So in 2009, as was mentioned previously, the president signed into law the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. And that expanded essentially the use of these private activity bonds. And it includes now a wide, a wide range of activities. that They've excluded certain SIN-type activities. Um, but these new super IRBs are known as recovery zone facility bonds. 
And like IRBs, you have to go through a municipality or a county to get these bonds issued. Um, and unlike the old IRBs, they're not limited to $10 million. Uh, we're currently doing a $45 million deal in, in South Chicago. We have another $65 million deal we're trying to get done uh, soon here. So virtually any, other tr any trade or business can use this program. Um, however, again, it doesn't provide credit. So either your borrower has to have some kind of credit capacity or he has to be able to go to his bank and obtain credit enhancement, normally in the form of a letter of credit. If we can do that, we can access very, very low interest rates in the tax-exempt bond market. A variable rate, which floats weekly today, um, is priced at around 25 to 30 basis points. And to that, you'd add your letter of credit costs. So it's, it's very inexpensive money that uh, we can access through the recovery zone facility bonds. The bad news is, though, the program was put in place in 2009. It expires in 2010 at the end of this year. So unless your project is already underway, uh, there's no chance you're going to get it done through this, through this program. Having said that, uh, Senator Mark Max Bacchus, who is the Finance Committee Chairman, submitted a bill to try to extend this for one more year. So I would um, ask everybody to keep an eye on that bill. If it is extended for another year, any projects that you have moving forward in 2011 would potentially be a good candidate to use the recovery zone facility bonds. Um, in addition, that bill is going to uh, expand the use or at least extend the use of what's called Build America bonds. Build America bonds are used by municipalities to fund municipal type um, improvements. So it really doesn't work for us in the real estate area, real estate development side. Uh, it is, cannot be used for private activity, has to be used for, for public improvements. Um, that is, gets a lot of play. You've probably read a lot of articles about Build America bonds. The state has been using them, the, the city, uh, counties. Uh, it is a program where the state or the issuer gets to issue taxable bonds and the U.S. Treasury then rebates up to 35% of that interest back to them. Again, I want to mention it, but it really isn't going to be of much benefit here. Uh, a couple of other programs that are outside ARRA are the Midwest Disaster Area Bonds. These were bonds that were um, allowed um, beginning in, I think it was put into place in 2008 under Bush, and it allowed for, again, these super IRBs to be done in cer certain counties, northern Illinois and certain counties in southern Wisconsin and large parts of Iowa. Remember in 2008, we had large floods. Iowa City flooded. Um, so they put a program together sort of like the go zone bonds for Katrina down in New Orleans that allows us to issue tax-exempt bonds to fund new development in these certain counties. Um, that expires in Dece on December 31st of 2012. So again, if you have projects going in those areas, and we can be more specific if we can get into that later, um, it's worth pursuing or at least looking into this. The other item that uh, I wanted to bring up are new market tax credits. Again, a, a federal program, a very difficult program. Um, the nice thing about new market tax credits, it will allow you to essentially infuse your project with, with equity by issuing tax credits, which are then sold at a discount. Typically, you're looking at 25, 26, 27% of your project equity or the 
cost of the project can be financed through these new market tax credits, virtually eliminating the need for private equity. Um, very difficult programs, and, and I could go on forever about how to put those together. So we're going to skip into another program that um, right now is we're, we're trying to get pushed forward, and that's the renewable energy projects. Currently, your renewable energy projects must be, uh, to, in order to get any federal benefits, have to be either state-owned or uh, from a utility company. Uh, they are trying to expand this into the private activity bond sector so that we can use these for renewable energy green projects, um, again, on a private activity basis. Um, getting back to uh, the Bacchus bill, there are a few other items which, if passed, would be very beneficial to the real estate industry. Um, for housing tax credits, instead of taking the tax credits over a 10-year period, there, there, there is a direct payment that is available. Um, hopefully that will be extended. Uh, there's immediate deductibility of brownfield cleanup sites, and there's also accelerated depreciation on a lot of, a lot of various projects. It's, it's amazing how they pick these projects out, like uh, uh, motor, uh, motors, motor racetracks can deduct, accelerate their depreciation. I, I don't know how they got that in there, but somebody had some pull. So I want to give you two quick examples of some projects that we've done recently. One, Sunset Grove project in Long Grove. It was a Sunset Foods CVS for that deal. These were, these were all state incentives or state programs, but we combined TIF, sales tax sharing, business district, and a special service area to get that project done. Today, that's what it takes. Um, that coupled with the equity and, and a, a very low loan-to-value bank loan, we were able to pull that deal together. Another one is uh, we're in the process now. We're in the market with uh, a deal called Asphalt Operating Services of Chicago. That was through the city of Chicago, $45 million worth of recovery zone facility bonds. The banks wouldn't touch this deal. It was an asphalt plant or liquid asphalt plant. It had construction risk. Banks ran. So we were able to do this deal through uh, the tax-exempt bond market as a high-yield deal, and uh, the facility will be built. So how do we get development done in this environment? I think the answer is we have to use or at least explore every opportunity we have out there, every available uh, type of incentive. And now more than ever, I think we have to engage the local municipality and uh, take advantage of these state economic programs and these federal programs. Okay. Thanks, Peter. I thought those were interesting examples. Uh, most of the audience are either occupiers of space or people who provide services to the occupiers of space. So if I'm a, a company that needs financing, either for working capital or just to replace the vacuum on the commercial side, what are the things, but I'm not interested in expanding. You know, I don't want to spend money on infrastructure or more buildings. Are there programs in place for that, or is, are these primarily limited to growth and, and, uh, and development? They are almost exclusively for growth and development. For instance, the uh, recovery zone facility bonds um, have to be used for depreciable assets and cannot be used for acquisition. Um, you could use them in conjunction with acquisition if you have at least 100% of your basis going into rehabilitation. So if you bought the building for $10 million and you have $8 million exclusive of land, of basis, you'd have to put another $8 million in to that project to qualify. So it, for working capital and other um, 
needs of that sort, very, in my opinion, very few federal or state programs. And what if I'm a developer that's either building a spec building or a build a suit or a partial build a suit? Uh, it sounds like programs could be available for that. Uh, is that true? And do I need to you know, create some sort of competitive environment where I might go to Iowa to, to get them? Or how does that all, all fit together? Well, the uh, recovery zone bonds are available across the country. They are limited. There's certain allocation that is given to certain counties and, and cities uh, with populations greater than 100,000. But the, in your example, absolutely, that's the type of thing. Although, again, unless it's extended into uh, 2011, it's going to be too late to get any of that done. But it would work uh, for spec buildings. It would work for build the suits. Um, any of those types of new development, this is a program, if extended, that you should look into. And as the traditional sources of financing have drifted off in the last couple of years, are more dollars being delivered through the mechanisms that you mentioned to the business environment or, or not? Uh, the interesting fact, and people here might have some better details, but the city of Chicago was allocated $199 million of these recovery zone bonds. I think there's been one deal done so far. So... Surprisingly, the incentive has been out there, the program has been out there, but because there's the lack of banks supplying credit, the program has gone mostly unused. And that is why uh, we hope they extend it. The Cook County received 196 million, um, of which a large portion was just transferred to DePage so that they could do the Navistar deal. So it's surprisingly, a large, large portion of, of this program has gone unused. Okay, thanks. Uh, Danielle, I'll turn it over to you. Hi, everyone. A um, couple bright spots first. I'm, I'm talking local, um, but then most of mine is going to be doom and gloom like Bob. Um, I'm going to focus, again, local, a lot of city of Chicago, but let me also touch on the other, on the burbs in the met Chicago metro area. Let's talk about some bright spots. If the economy were not where it is right now, I don't think you would have seen the Walmart breakthrough into the city. I also see the city of Chicago restructuring TIFs right and left where the developers didn't um, actually fulfill their obligations under the redevelopment agreement. And rather than just canceling the TIF agreements, they're restructuring them, seeing a lot of sale of city-owned land. I also think that in the suburbs, there's still some excess staff capacity. So if you're trying to get land use and development deals done, you can get attention and flexibility. If you can find those little bright spots, run with them, because the rest of what I have to say is kind of depressing. Um, city of Chicago, um, I tried to make a list getting ready for this. What is stressing out City of Chicago employees right now? And I'm a land use and zoning attorney, a development attorney, but also representing property owners who just um, own land in the City of Chicago, which is regulated by the City of Chicago in more ways than they wish it was. Um, and I'm a uh, public incentives attorney as well. I'm going to focus on the the regulatory side here. So what's stressing them out? Lack of pension funding, operational budget deficits, um, pressure for early retirement that then has people leaving their positions, privatization, departmental mergers. Um, you know, if you work for the city of Chicago on your paycheck, it says F 
few days for your furlough unpaid days. And there are a lot of them. Um, that's true. That's true. Um, corruption probes, corruption prosecution, proliferation of community groups and blogosphere. So what you're doing is very, very much in the public eye. Um, uncertainty, obviously, regarding mayoral leadership. We're going to have a ton of aldermanic seats up. Um, and departmental leadership, because once we get a new mayor, we're going to get new department heads right and left, and of course, aldermanic remaps. So that's a little ways off. So what are the critical manifestations or outcomes for the folks I represent who are property owners um, and uh, developers? You've got a loss of staff. They've been laid off or they're taking furlough unpaid days, paired with a flood of applications right now as people are trying to get things done before the mayor leaves. You've got, again, just a lot of stagnation, delay. All the decisions are being made by committee. It takes, it is just even more uh, lengthy and difficult to get creative, flexible workout solutions for uh, developments that are half done or adaptive reuse projects where you're trying to reposition an asset. And proposals, not surprisingly, they are being scrutinized and evaluated by elected officials even more than usual in terms of their critical voting constituencies, their critical campaign finance constituencies. And I also see a lot of elected officials um, making decisions, um, rationally so, to position themselves for re-election. Um, and now, in some cases, that's involving regulatory relief. And I noticed that we just had uh, Alderman Riley, for example, introduce um, an ordinance to try to consolidate um, billing for Chicago businesses so they don't have to deal with so many different departments. Um, let me switch real quickly to the burbs and I think the new taxes, higher taxes, new fees, different fees, all everything Bob said is absolutely true. Um, obviously we're dealing now with water billing scrutiny that's very much in the news right now. Um, at the same time you see both state and local amnesty programs. Watch out for those. Trying to get the revenue in now um, you really want to keep your eye out for those. Um, here's some of the more creative stuff that I've seen from cash-strapped municipalities. And it gets weird. Um, <laughs> heavy enforcement of odd provisions in zoning codes that say certain types of facilities have to be developed on village land first, unless the village says no, in which case they can be developed on private land. Not sure that one's legal, but see, I'm seeing that. I'm seeing moratoria as village say, well, we got to we got to take stock, we got to stop development in an area um, until we can rewrite our zoning code in ways that will uh, mandate or facilitate that there are only uses that are going to be more tax generating. Um, I've seen, what else? I've seen crazy stuff. I've seen um, municipalities with obligations under incentive agreements that were cut years ago trying to manufacture defaults on the part of the private parties so that they don't have to pay. Um, alleging non-performance, leveraging weird little zoning things to find excuses for fines. Um, on, now, yeah, I'm really liking this new vacant property tax abatement statute, but it, there's also, on the flip side, Illinois has greatly um, added to the breadth of municipal powers to um, use self-help uh, and take over the maintenance of vacant properties and now do even more kinds of services than they've done before. And then they get super lean powers that will prime your private mortgages. So I, 
the burbs are still catching up on whether and how to um, implement those new statutory powers, but they've got them. And I was told to be five minutes, and I think I was, so there I go. Great. It's the brain drain. Thank you. You were and right stay, on time. And stay away from those FU days. Not pretty. <laughs> Not pretty. You know, I've noticed uh, the traffic tickets are uh, a little more prevalent nowadays, too. Yeah, but so now they're nothing. stealing the parking boxes. So, <laughs> uh, so we're going to open it up to questions. Uh, if you have one, raise your hand, and, and somebody will come by with a mic. Uh, I'm going to start off with as many as I need to until people in the audience start asking. Uh, you know, I've lived in Chicago for 25 years, and there's a couple of constants of my experience. You know, the, the Cubs is, is one. Yeah, you're, you're still in my line. Uh, the weather, and then uh, Mayor Daly has been in office for basically the entire time I've lived here. You know, I don't know how many people are running. It was well under the double figures, but I'd like each of your impressions on what the likely impact to uh, people who do business in the city or with the city look to the city for financing or pay taxes to the city uh, will be of uh, the, new, the next election cycle. And I'm not asking you to predict who's going to win, but you know, what are the possible outcomes and how will that impact all of us? And, and anybody can, can go. Who here watches Chicago tonight? Oh my gosh, you guys, it's like crack to me. It's not that I'm a crack smoker, but it's this great local uh, politics show. And my prediction is that you've got a microcosm of what's coming. I told Joe this story at lunch a couple weeks ago. It was right after the mayor announced. And Eddie Arusa was trying to moderate a panel of not four people such as us, but four aldermen. And they got into a knockdown, drag out, talking over each other fight over things like which amounts of public funds were going to be spent in which ward and how. And he could not control the four of them. And it was complete chaos for five minutes. And that's what's coming. I mean, <laughs> we're not going to have an emperor or a king over the nobility anymore who keeps them in check and controls them. And I think we're going to have a, a ton of chaos. And we might see a one-termer followed by somebody who's stronger because people just want to get over the chaos. But I think it's going to, we're entering an incredible period of uncertainty. I think some of us probably lived here during the Gene Sawyer era, and it sounds like it might be a little bit like that. Anybody else having? Joe, you're an old-time Chicago I insider. Am. And, and uh, I differ from you, Steve, um, in the fact that when I started working for the city of Chicago in 1987, I joined under the Harold Washington administration and uh, had the, uh, the, the privilege of working under Harold Washington, acting Mayor Sawyer and Mayor Daley for five years, uh, and served all three in Springfield. Uh, with the mayor's team. And so there are tremendously different styles among those uh, three mayors. Uh, certainly uh, Mayor Daly is a CEO type of style with uh, great leadership, um, able to have you know, not only the vision of uh, grand plans, but the ability to execute. Uh, I think the biggest risk we see down the road is that ability to execute. Uh, to be able to pull all the stakeholders together and to uh, convince them that this is the, the direction the city needs to go in, uh, you know, whether it's a major infrastructure project or uh, attracting a headquarters to downtown Chicago or making a major um, 
change in the public school system in Springfield, um, uh, reforming uh, pension codes, etc. These are things that the mayor has, has done and much more that uh, regardless of who gets elected, it's going to be a challenge. One of my personal hopes is that um, uh, Mayor Daley, you know, we've all lived in situations where a politician, whether it be a governor or uh, a county official, announces that they're not running for re-election. And you know, that term is known as a lame duck. And normally when someone is a lame duck, no one really listens to them anymore. Uh, they're, they're ineffective in some respects for that last year or six months. Uh, I don't think anyone views Mayor Daley as a lame duck. Uh, and, and my point is that, uh, my, and my hope is that regardless of whomever uh, wins the election for mayor, that they will reach out to Mayor Daley as an advisor and um, in, in some at least unofficial, if not official, capacity. So sounds like uh, chaos is coming. Potentially. Yeah. Steve? Um, I just wanted to make a, um, maybe an observation about Robert's presentation about recovery zone bonds. Uh, I'm with Choose DePage, and we're the economic development group for DePage County. We did give up all of our um, remaining recovery zone capacity to Illinois Finance Authority, and going forward, they're trying to consolidate that authority around Illinois so projects can still be financed. But we didn't, uh, Navistar did not use any of the Cook County capacity for the DePage projects. They're using that for the Cook County project in Melrose Park. The rest of the DePage project was financed by other collar counties outside the Chicago area. And then I wanted to ask Joe a question, too. You'd mentioned uh, a number of the new and innovative state incentive policies. Now, do they have budget caps on those, and have they reached those budget caps that have prevented companies from accessing some of those incentive programs right. that you know of? The, the only one that has a cap of the ones I, I mentioned is the Kansas Peak program, which is limited to $4.8 million per year. The other programs are exemptions or repayment of or withholding of uh, personal income tax withholding from new jobs. So the states that have imposed those programs view those as uh, self-funding. So there is no public expenditure, so there's no need to put a cap on it. They're not budgeted in the state budget. Okay, uh, I'm going to ask, I guess, just one more and then we'll wrap unless there's a, a burning question from the audience. Uh, a common theme through a number of your presentations were uh, reduction of government payroll, uh, which means less people, which means it takes a longer time to get things done. Have your clients been experiencing a long delay in applications and is that impacting their ability to uh, do business here in the state of Illinois or specifically the city of Chicago? I, uh, I'll have a two-part answer. In the suburbs, I think it's actually better because there's less activity and they still might have overstaffing, as Danielle was saying. So I think you get a lot more attention in the suburbs. In the city of Chicago, uh, between layoffs and between department consolidations, um, I don't think it's, it's gotten any better. It uh, might be, uh, might have, improved a little bit, but um, it's still very tough to get a deal done in the city of Chicago. I would say it's, it's hard to generalize. However, one of the things that I think is a challenge is that 
over the past couple of years, a lot of the senior people have left uh, through early retirement. And so you, lo you lose institutional knowledge, you lose relationships with people. And with junior people now trying to shoulder a larger burden of workload, fewer staff, more workload, less experience, I think that's, that, that is where part of the, the challenge comes from. Anybody else in the audience? Well, thanks to each of our panelists for uh, coming and uh, sharing their wisdom with, with us. And uh, am I wrapping it completely, Dan? Or just thanks for coming, and we'll see you next month. Yeah, just uh, please uh, fill out your, uh, the forms. We use those uh, for feedback and for our next programs. Thank you again. Thank you, Steve, and thank you to our panelists for today. It's great.